welcome everybody to That Recruiter Show with me, Rodney Stegall, and... Julietta Bruzzi. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to episode three. And um, we have a special guest today. And the crowd goes yeah. wild. <laughs> uh, Hi, everyone. So everyone meet Monica Pham, the great Monica Pham. <laughs> Fom, Monica Fom. Oh, I'm oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah true. <laughs> no, totally fine. Um, it's been a, honestly a long running joke of if it's Fam or Fom, and I often don't correct people, but technically Fom. But I've asked my dad about this before, whether or not it's pronounced Fam or Fom, and he st- stays strong in Fom. So that's very we're fair. Going. <laughs> <laughs> what we've been going. With. I'm happy to be corrected. So it's, that's <laughs> awesome. So why don't why don't you tell uh, the listeners a little bit about yourself, Monica? Uh, yeah, so um, I live in Seattle. Um, I have always been in recruiting ever since I left college. I actually went to University of Washington, studied communications. Um, I would say we were just discussing this, but as always, recruiting isn't necessarily one of those things that you go to school for and so you kind of happen upon it. Um, so yeah, I, I basically was um, always really interested in working with people. I know it's really general, but I'm sure you can ask any recruiter, recruiting manager. Do you like working with people? Hopefully they don't say no. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I love working with people and students and, um, I kind of wasn't sure what my direction would be post-college, but, um, actually my brother-in-law worked at, um, a tech company and he was uh, an SDET actually. And so he had worked really closely with the recruiting team um, on some of their products. I think it was actually their ATS system or their CRM. So he, he kind of came up to me and was like, what do you think about recruiting? And, and it was university recruiting, which was really cool. So it kind of combined what I was interested in being able to work with students. Um, so I started as an RC, so I actually climbed the full, the full ladder. So I've kind of touched every part of recruiting at some point. So recruiting coordinator, scheduling, um, I started, um, kind of in the, we call it non-core development hiring. So it's kind of technical account managers, associate consultants. And then I moved over to a different tech company after that and was full-blown technical recruiting, but for industry. And so for me, that was an interesting transition. I was kind of nervous to leave students. One, because I do love that experience, but two, students are a lot more eager mm-hmm. to take a job and talk to you. A funny thing about university <laughs> recruiting is once people get into it, there's a passion in that that people mm-hmm. don't leave i mean it's absolutely it's, you know yes. people yeah. usually stay in it so yeah but i, it, I interrupted it, you i'm sorry <laughs> oh not at all no I, totally and so it, it was really hard for me to leave i was on contract though actually and so i was looking to get into a more full-time role um so i ended up technical uh, um doing technical recruiting and then got really interested in all that is onboarding, mentorship, just really trying to help other people learn how to do the job I was in, which kind of led me to being a recruiting manager eventually. So I've been, I was in that position for the last uh, four years. I've loved it. I love working with people. And um, until recently, unfortunately, was laid off as as most of us are um, or have been lately. But um, yeah, so that's kind of my, my backstory about how I got into recruiting. Well, thank you and welcome. Thank you. I'm so welcome. Both. Yeah, and so so how is how is it going? I think you know I'm I'm in the same boat as you, right? I think we're we're mm-hmm. open and honest. I'm I've been laid off, and so I'm I'm in my job search. How is yours going? 
Um, to be totally honest, I am not looking at all right now. Well, you're writing a book, aren't you? I am writing a book. Yeah. So, um, for me, the layoff was definitely difficult. I think it was a situation where I've been at my company for six years. So the, uh, just even thinking about what was next was pretty overwhelming, just to be honest. Like, I didn't really know. Part of me was like, is this this crux of life where I stay in recruiting? Do I try something brand new? Um, I am fortunate enough to have a little bit more severance than I think um, some people have due to my tenure in my company. So I kind of gave myself the permission to rest, I think, for the next awesome. at least month or two. I, I've definitely kept my eyes open, but um, sort of lean into your point, passion projects that I've always kind of cared about. So, yeah, I've been writing a book for the last 10 years. Um, and when I say that, clearly I wasn't writing it every day because it's <laughs> a long time. <laughs> kind of pick it up, put it down kind of thing. But, uh, yeah, so I've been kind of diving back into that, hopefully publishing out on uh, Kindle publishing this year. and. Um, yeah, so that's exciting. And then my sister and I actually, it's funny, we, we wanted to start a podcast last year. And so we've been kind of talking about doing that as well. So just do it. Yeah, it's probably the only time that I have this much free time. So I might as well try, right? That is awesome. You got the gift of gab. Go for it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) To say the least. There's (laughs) there's something about a sister too, where you get, you like that rapport is, I I have a sister too. So that rapport is fun to to work with and bounce off. I, you did, you did sneak peek the, um, the title with me. If you did it, can you share? Cause I think it's really fun. Oh, no, for sure. So, um, wait, so on my podcast or the book? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, of, of my podcast. So, um, so as we discussed, my last name is Fom, and so my sister and I have always had this running joke between us where uh, we called it Fomfidence. It's kind of like confidence. <laughs> so her and I were always very confident and had a lot to say and had a lot of opinions, and so we always called it our Fomfidence. That's awesome. Like, confidence in life. So it, it basically would be a podcast regarding... Um, people that use confidence in their life to make big decisions, whether it change career paths, make, you know, yeah. big changes in their life and stuff. Publish your book. Well, if our, when you're done and we're published, we will, we'll do a promo spot for you. Oh very yeah. That'd be great. And, um, <laughs> And if you, if, if listeners love Monica and what she has to say, she uh, freely takes kickboxing classes and tequila as gifts. Nice. So, oh, yeah. Anytime. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. So, so, Julia, how are you doing? You're practicing um, the violin, right? Um, pass. No, um, no, not yet. I haven't. Um, so days are good. So it's, you know... I said this in, I think, the first episode. Get up, start your day, still, you know, take the kids to school, work out, eating healthy, kind of trying to stick with that regimen. Um, there's days when it feels a little bit slower. Um, and I am an enemy of myself in idle time. So I'm like, okay, what's next? And that's usually the day that I decide to make some, like, intricate, crazy meal that sometimes <laughs> pans out and sometimes doesn't. But... I hit it really hard um, out the gate. I know I've talked about this with a few people. So it's been, we've been on the market now for three weeks. Um, I did receive an offer on Friday from a company. Congratulations! Thank you. I had final interviews at a company that I did not 
get the job, which is okay. Made it to made it to final, and then I have another final interview tomorrow morning, and my fingers are crossed because they invited me to lunch with them after. So feeling like that might nice. be a good sign. Can't put my foot in my mouth. Yeah. Feel good things. So the goal was like hit it super super hard, and then maybe take you know, a little bit of leisure time before a start date, if, if that's open to it. So that's awesome. That's where I am. I have a little relief. I I do. That's good. But Um, except I want you to, I I just, I want to hear you play the violin. I mean, you literally (laughs) were like, you, you studied the violin. I want to hear it. (laughs) Did you, did you put that on your resume as special skills? That could be, that could be it. (laughs) I do have it under, like under my education, so I went to Penn State and I was in the orchestra there and I do have it. I mean, I was a music major, so it says music. And then I just put it like in teeny tiny print, like violinists oh, at see, the bottom. Like instead of like making a joke, like the world's tiniest violin, you could actually break out a violin. Like, yeah. I'm yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I thinking. I use that example. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Yeah. So I sign my offer letter and I'll be like, but just so you know, I'm starting a band and I'm going to need a little extra spare time. Um, I do actually use it in my, in interviews frequently because they talk about like executive presence and presentations and things like that. And I'm like, okay, well, I had to stand in front of, you know, 2000 people and perform and, but also you have to sit in a room and when you do, I don't know if you're familiar with a jury, but that's like your final exam. So mm. it's basically like the whole um, professor suite, uh, music department staff, and you play for them um, usually in a concert hall all by yourself. And then you get that critique right then and there. So you got to wow. build up pretty good thick skin to, to feel that, um, you know, to keep moving forward and excelling, not let it just completely crush your soul every time you get that <laughs> criticism. But that's like you you go through that and then all of a sudden, you know, you're standing in front of uh in a conference table and you're like, oh, I got this. Totally. Oh my right. gosh. That's right. terrifying. I played violin as a kid and um <laughs> I wasn't very good. But when we'd have our con- concerts, I think there was times when like I like didn't know certain sections of the song and I would just kind of do the motions with my <laughs> with my wrist. <laughs> so Julia, it's very impressive. I would never be able to pass that note. I faked it. You just need more confidence. Oh, You're right. Yes. Oh my god. I, I was like nine. It wasn't there yet. That is awesome. Well, we got a thorny topic today. We do. We do. So, and, you know, I think this is our first time we we will have kind of touched on anything thorny at all. And, yes. And it's thorny because I think it's so many different things to so many different people. And, you know, people tend to have kind of extreme, not all people have extreme ideas about it, but there are extreme ideas on both sides. Yes. Which is diversity, equity, and inclusion. And, you know, in my mind, I was thinking about it because we live in Florida um, and yeah. we live in two different Floridas, right? You live in South Florida. I live on the East Central Coast. And, you know, the mentality in those two different areas are very different. But we live in, in a, you know, a state where, you know, Disney is, is kind of on the block for with the governor because they su- supported uh, or they actually didn't support the governor's don't say gay bill 
which you know we'll, we'll link to that in the this you know in the podcast you guys can can look that up but yep. um you know they're so that kind of put them in the crosshairs of of the state government and and i'm actually from an area where you know things are are uh we had this group moms for liberty here that's like banning books in libraries and things like that um and even my alma mater was was kind of on the national news which i can play for you which shocked me with regard to dei yeah. so here I'll, I'll play this florida state university completely controlled by the left has just adopted a series of diversity equity and inclusion programs to promote bigotry openly castigates believing Christians for their Christian privilege. <laughs> There's no Christian privilege in this country, by the way. The school also offers a racially segregated scholarship that bars white students from applying, which is illegal, but it's also race hatred. What's another word for it? There isn't one. It's race hatred. But this is everywhere. So I, I kind of, I, I heard that and I was like, you know, I went to school there. I, I go back every once in a while and there's, there's no race hatred in that administration. And I'm, I'm thinking like, this is kind of a weird thing. So I, I went and looked at it and it was a diversity scholarship. And I think, golly, you know, we've kind of gone into a weird place where a diversity scholarship becomes like a perceived as race hatred. Yes. And so we, we've kind of arrived at this place where it's, you know, the consciousness is everywhere, but DEI initiatives are huge in the corporate world. And, so we have to to kind of look at that and say we've got a lot of different ideas about what this is good bad and different and you know how are we dealing with that so i look at it and i think if i'm a dei professional i've seen it in in so many different ways right you've you're trying to pull people into this idea that diversity is good but when i look at some of the things that are happening i i ask are we pulling in people who have you know, whether it's 20, 30% of the population who have a negative conception of diversity, right? Um, are we doing that? Or are we really kind of speaking to a specific audience that is already keyed up to, to like or, or accept it? I feel like so much of the thorniness comes from what people perceive as intent, where obviously it's good intent. That's what, if you're a true DNI good practitioner, it's good intent. And we, the way we used to frame it up um, was want our workforce to be reflective of the customer base that we serve. That was the the sentiment and kind of broke it down by, by each. And I, you know, we were kind of spitballing about this before and the intent um, piece, like there, the affirmative action, some people say quotas and <laughs> you were, you were quite good about explaining, no, that's not what it's about. And it's not like, hey, you're penalized or fined by not meeting those requirements. Mm -hmm. But it's that good faith effort. And in my opinion, it makes business better. Um, Mon, I want to let you chime in, but that there was that one example that I was talking about earlier about I was watching TV the other day and they were on vacation mm -hmm. and they were out and about. Um, and instead of the closed captioning, I know I'm not that old, but I like closed captioning <laughs> at, the, at the bottom, instead of the language continuing, it just said in parentheses speaking in Spanish. And to me, I'm like, Oh my gosh, that's really alienating to a very large population of people that could be 
watching and, and listening. And I, I, I just feel like from a business case scenario, why would you not have somebody that di that's diversity um, on your team that's diverse on your team that would be able to fulfill that, that product uh, error, really? Yeah. 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 I mean, obviously at its root, it's, it's just, it is so important to a company, right? Like we need diverse perspectives, gender, ethnicity to come together and create the best products. We need people to feel included, understood, be able to speak up when they should. Um, as someone who worked at a company where, you know, especially in recruiting, and I'm sure you guys all can agree, there's so much emphasis on it. Um, but sometimes it has been a little disheartening to feel like it was more about numbers and let's make sure we do this than the aftermath, right? And so it's kind of like, okay, from the top of the funnel hiring, let's say, we want to make sure we are creating these opportunities that maybe wouldn't be as um, available to certain people, right? And making sure that we are hiring inclusively and making sure our company is um, well-rounded. But it's also then what happens after. Are we retaining this talent? How are they being treated while they work here? Are they being able to speak up in certain ways? Are they getting the resources that they need? I mean, even I noticed so many times like complaints about interview loops where their their loop wasn't as diverse as they would have hoped. Mm -hmm. And they did not feel like anyone on that loop was a representation of who they were. And so they just automatically weren't necessarily sure about that company. And so um, obviously the root of it to me is so important, but sometimes it gets a little bit of a question mark once you actually get into the company and like, what are we really doing to retain this talent and make it a part of our life and not just a part of our hiring? Yeah. And, and I think DEI professionals have it hard. I, I think they spend yeah. so much of their time justifying themselves and, yeah, you know, you have executives who are kind of looking for the numbers on things, which I, I don't know if that's the right way for DEI. And, and I, you know, let's take, for example, we, we work in recruiting and I think out of the gate, you know, we stir up red flags with people because in every recruiting process, you're asking for their gender, ethnicity, are they disabled? You know, that keys some people up, right? Like, what are you going to do now? Are you going to now look at me at, and say, okay, I'm going to pick this person because they're this race. And n not that that's the case, because it's not. Most ATSs, you know, for those of you who are not in the recruiting industry, although that data is being collected, it is not shared. So a hiring manager will never see that. Sometimes a recruiter will never see that. I think in the, you know, where we were, I think that's shielded from the recruiters as well. So that, that kind of data is really, you know, comes back into regulatory information that the government kind of looks at when they're auditing in a good way. And, you know, to your point, Julia, if we look at affirmative action, I think people look at that and say it's quotas, which, which it isn't. And what people should know out there is really affirmative action is about showing as a company, I am making the best faith effort to hire people who are under, underrepresented in the positions that I have in these areas. So, for example, if Juliet is in Fort Lauderdale and she's hiring for software engineers in her company, you know, you look at the software engineering population there and say, this is the ethnic makeup. And so this group is underrepresented. Juliet is the CEO. She's going to do everything she can to, to give people who are underrepresented an opportunity to, to get those jobs. And at the end of the year, she's going to say, here's what I've done. Here are the results. 
I was not able to increase my, my population of, of this ethnicity, but here's what I did to try. And that's the, the gist of affirmative action. It's not that you didn't hire that many, so you're going to be penalized. And I think, you know, the perception out there is you didn't make your quota. So, you know, that's what's going to happen. And I see it happen in, in recruiting to where even, you know, the implementation of that becomes a quota, right? So for recruiting in the sense that, hey, you need to have this many people on your interview slate or not interview slate, but um, candidate slate and things like that, which produces more, I guess, apathy or, or, or even, you know, outright hostility. Um, but we kind of have to deal with that in recruiting, right? And I think, you know, how do you make people comfortable with that coming in the door? To your point, Monica, like, how do you, how do you deal with someone who, who did come in? And obviously I'm, I'm, I'm a brown guy. <laughs> Everyone, I'm, I'm sure they've seen my picture. Um, I'm, I'm half black and half Filipino. There have been actually every interview I've ever been on. I've been the only brown guy. I've never interviewed yeah. with, with a person mm. of color. That is, you know, that makes me feel a certain way. I, I kind of look at that. Did it go, bother you? I don't think it bothered me, but it, you know, you kind of look at it and go, I'm a, a, I'm used to it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm, I'm like in the sense that like, okay, this is not something that I'm, I've never been in this situation, but you wonder, you know what I mean? You're just kind of like, why, why aren't there more people like me out in this company or at least talking to me? Yeah. I've been the only, I've, I've interviewed with all male panels mm -hmm. uh, re recently, how did, actually. How did that make you feel? Um, uh, actually empowered and like they needed me mm -hmm. and, um, I don't know. I'm all, if, if the listeners don't know me, I'm white female. Um, I'm also quite tall and my little interview trick is I wear very tall heels too. So I'm usually about like six, one, six, two. When I, when I go in for an interview, just, yep, you know, just little, little things here and there that, that kind of help build some stature in a, <laughs> um, so no, I, it's, it really, it didn't bother me that much, but mm. I don't know if that's how I was raised or, um, I, I was like, I'm here. I feel very confident. Um, I had my confidence. <laughs> I love it. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, I was fine. Um, I was fine with it. It actually made me feel like, okay, I can, I can do some really good stuff here because they need me. Yeah. I think what, what's interesting, so it's like different, but similar experience. So like, I've definitely, um, been on loops where there was, so I am, I identify as a female, I am half Vietnamese, um, but there's been most of the loops I've ever been on. There were definitely women. Um, and so that I didn't have to just interview with men, but once I had the job, I, I wonder if Julia can also, um, attest to this in, even in recruiting in the technical recruiting piece there, it's kind of male heavy. Like there, there tends yes. to be a lot more male recruiting managers. Um, in the tech space. And so there was a probably a two, three year period where every single peer I had that I was working with on the recruiting like manager level or leader was a man. Um, and so to your point, Juliet, for a while, it did empower me too. I was like, oh, I'm the only female on this team. I have a lot of great perspective. Um, I will say there were 
multiple men colleagues who were fantastic and let me speak and gave me room for that in meetings and, and wanted me to go first. But there was this natural feeling of like, I don't know if you guys completely relate to how I'm thinking, my mm -hmm. perspective. I felt a little bit like I had to try kind of two times harder to get my voice heard in those conversations. Um, and so, yeah, it's kind of this weird middle ground of like, you're like, I am the one voice of the many, but that can go both ways. Sometimes I'm not as heard maybe in those situations. So mm -hmm. it's interesting. Well, I've definitely pulled that. Um, remember, remember Kamala Harris, I'm speaking. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I, I mean, I've done that many times in my career where I wasn't finished my thought, but I also really appreciate the candidly, the men, and I've had some amazing male peers, supervisors, um, mentors that have elevated my voice, whether there's, you know, whether they're saying, well, Julia had a greater idea or Julia wasn't finished speaking. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's, there's male, female race aside, that is an exceptional way to be as a colleague. Yep. And, you know, I think it's tremendously important. And I think there's a different um, view of that even globally, right? We, I, I worked for a yes. phenomenal leader. Her name was Katie Cook. And she, she's now the, the president for North America at that company, but she was, she also leads diversity and inclusion. And she was just a phenomenal leader, but it looked different because that company was based out of a different country. And, you know, for them, if you look at that population, it was fairly homogenous amongst 14,000 of the 16,000. So, you yep. know, it ended up being the focus was was more along the lines of we need to diversify, diversify from a female perspective. And, you know, I think there was a, she implemented a ton of change for the good in, in doing that. And, and part of it was creating a, an environment where, you know, it was not abnormal to have men talking over women, as, as you said, Juliet. Yes. But, you know, through her leadership as a DEI leader, she empowered and educated everyone in that organization to a point where you started to see people just kind of call a timeout in a meeting and say, I'm not comfortable with the way that mm. you're treating this person. She's a mm -hmm. female and, and I'm not comfortable with it. We either need to take a pause or agree things are going to, you know, we're going to structure this differently going forward. But that's, you know, I think that's, that's part of the good that DEI can do um, mm -hmm. under, under a great leader. But I don't know that, that people, still agree with DEI as a concept. You know, I, I see, and I think we're seeing that in, in some of these, you know, instances that I mentioned, it's still being kind of vilified. I think I saw it in the news today that Texas is trying to get rid of DEI programs in their education system, in the college education system. So, you know, how are we going to change that, right? We, we see the good, but I think you also have a very real component of people who just don't want it. And what I go ahead. Sorry. Oh yeah. Sorry. No, I, it's kind of along the topic. What I always found was a really interesting um, topic that in recruiting comes up all the time is with DEI efforts, dedicated sources and recruiters or not, because mm -hmm. so many people say it's everyone's job. And do I agree with that concept? Yes. This isn't, you know, 
a couple of people at a company focus on and the rest of the people, they don't have to worry about it at all. But there's, there was this distaste for having people, only certain people like focus on it because they're like, it's everyone's job. Mm -hmm. But if it's everyone's job, is it no one's job? And, you know, right. does delivering <laughs> right. results come first and the rest gets forgotten. So I was curious what you guys think about that in regards to, yeah, just like how we actually go about it and, and yeah. how you both feel. We touched on it a little bit in our sourcing conversation. And I think on the recruiting side, a huge piece of DEI is enablement mm -hmm. and structure and tools. Mm -hmm. um, now, obviously, you can still have people that are focused on bringing in diverse candidates. But a large part of that needs to be, do we have the tools? Do we have the processes in place to do it? Um, you know, I think a lot of that comes down to some of the conversations we had in selection systems. Um, because do you conceive of diversity as just ethnicity and gender? Or, or you know, gender identity? Because it's not going to matter to your company if you really want one person doesn't matter, you know, and, and, and I say it this way, color blindness can be just as bad as diversity, a focus on diversity in the sense that color doesn't matter. I just want this one person. But if, if you kind of define your company as this is who we are and we're only going to hire this, that's just as bad because as a company, you're not diverse enough in your thinking to now absorb new ideas that impacts your ability to, adjust to market conditions or, or the speed of it. Um, that's the reality of it so for me. So do you, do you, are you not a fan of de-identified resumes? In, in the sense of no name or anything like that? No name, no, like if you had an affiliation, like you were in, you know, um, National Black MBA, take that out. Um, take out name, obviously, because you can make an assumption on gender. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm agnostic to that. And, and here's why. Okay. Because I, I don't think you're making hiring decisions on any of that. And you really what you're trying to do is, is as a recruiter, we're trying to get as many qualified candidates as possible into our process because our mm -hmm. process works best when it can make good, good hiring decisions based on data. And if, if you can pull five qualified applicants, 10 qualified applicants in, regardless of all that stuff, that's, you're going to be able to make the best decision possible. So, you know, if, if I'm able to pull in a qualified candidate, that's really all I want to do. If I can, I'm not necessarily keying in on that. I think it's bonus, but I don't know recruiters. I've never met a recruiter to just kind of say, well, they're black. Let's put them in there. That's, you know, that's not what we do as recruiters because you, you're now playing with your own credibility to try and push someone who's not qualified. Like that, that's going to kill you with a hiring manager. Yeah, no, the, the qualification is definitely important. I do, I have, let's say, I have experienced organizations where there are slate mandates, mm -hmm. as in the recruiter has to present um, a person of color and a female for every opening in the company. And they have an internal. So say Monica is getting a promotion. 
three chills for Monica. Super happy for her. We would never want to stop Monica from moving up mm -hmm. and moving forward in her career. However, HR, TA, leadership, what have you, has a slate mandate. So we're going to have to have you meet with Rodney and meet with Juliet as well, just so we check all the boxes. Right. I think That's a disingenuous process. The intent is good. And, and I've seen the, that too. I've never worked in anywhere that had that kind of mandate, but I, I think it creates the backlash that I'm talking about. Correct. Um, I agree. And, and again, I, I think the, the intent is, is wonderful. You know, it's, it's all about diversity and the intent, but you're also playing into, you know, people's worst fears about DEI mm -hmm. and what it really shouldn't be. Um, and again, I, so I'm an opportunistic hiring philosophy guy. So, you know, one of the things I tell hiring managers is don't batch and queue in the sense, like, don't wait for five people, then make a decision because life doesn't move like that. If you find someone who meets your qualifications that you like, make the offer, close the job. Yeah. Don't wait for, I, I need to, I need to see three people to make a decision. Don't do that. You really it's know thyself, know what you're looking for, know what the, your, what skills you need, what qualifications you need. Um, oh, but how many people have you met that don't know? I know. And they know. throw out all the buzzwords and every soft skill in the book. And you're like, what do you, what is this person actually going to do? Yeah. It's, it's too iterative. Right. And yes, that's, I think as, as TA leaders, that's where we come in. And, you know, when we diagnose that, to help them get through it. And, but it happens. And, and I, you know, I've, I've worked with senior executives who still, after I say, don't do this, they insist on it. And you, you, you know, we're, you come into these situations where you're three weeks in and you've sourced three qualified candidates and they're like, I need seven. And, mm -hmm. and then it becomes an escalation. Like I can't fill this job because TA can't do what, what they're supposed to do. I've only got three candidates. I asked for seven and it becomes a whole, okay, now we got to get the CHRO involved or my boss and, and really kind of have this discussion all over again, which is process. It's a process discussion. It's not really a, a performance discussion, but. Have you experienced when there were, have you ever had a hiring manager say like, okay, so I filled, let's just say they had 10 roles. They filled good chunk of them, eight of them, let's just say, and have they ever said to you, like, let's not hire or let's wait and make sure our last two hires are like DEI. Have you ever had yes. a hiring manager say that? I yes. Haven't. You have? Really? Yeah. And they've said yeah. like, well, we've made most of our hires, so let's not like look at any other candidates unless they are oh, identified wow. as such. Mm -hmm. Yes. And as you know, as in recruiting, we've often said like, you know, that's not something we can or should be doing. You know, we are looking at qualified candidates and we should not be just like holding out for mm -hmm. um, this specific thing. But is the intent there to say, you know, we want to make sure our team is well-rounded. We have DEI, we have people of diversity. Let's make sure these hires are that. Yeah. And so it's, yeah, it, it, to, to your point, like, it's a very interesting thing that they're trying to put forth, I guess, maybe that positive intent, whereas it's also not the best use of that, right? If we're yeah. saying, like, do not make a hire unless. I, I, I pull that back into what I was saying about 
good faith effort, best, best mm-hmm. effort, um, and, and pulling in the best pool of qualified candidates that you can and as diverse as possible. Because if, if your process is good, your process is going to allow the cream to rise to the top and you're going to hire the best qualified candidate. And that's where, really where it comes in. That's what you want, the best qualified candidate. To me, the diversity problem comes in when you're not pulling in a diverse candidate pool or you're not trying to pull in yeah. a diverse candidate pool. Um, you know, at one point I, I worked, I was in charge of um, university recruiting and our board said, we want 10% of our uh, university hires to come from the top 10 universities in the country. It's like, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, part of, part of what I was trying to do was, was, you know, create a diverse pipeline. And, uh, you know, it, it got to the point where it was so hard to do that because especially, you know, in engineering, your female representation in, in like a software engineering department is going to be like 20%, yes. 24%, I think something like that. The current graduation rate right now, it's like 26% female. It's, yeah. it's still intensely low. And so, you know, it, it got to the point where to create a, a good candidate pool, you know, typically you're, it's not hard in terms of the, the qualifications at the university level, but, you know, we had to have a really big pool to, to get a diverse outcome. And it's hard, but if you, if your process is true and it's a good process and you get a diverse candidate pool, you're going to be fine. And I think we overhired, right? So we, what you want to see is get more than your fair share. And in that process, I think we ended up hiring like 40% female one year because we, we got our candidate pool in a, in a good place that we were able to make offers that were really diverse, like I was, I was amazed, but it was a focus on a diverse candidate pool, not saying we have to have these offers, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that's most of, I would say recruiting, like as TA leaders, what we tend to reiterate is the onsite representation versus number of hires. So, um, which I do think can be positive, right? It's like, let's just make this process and, the, the opportunity as, as wide as we possibly can mm-hmm. without making a decision based off of those things only. Yeah. And I think partnership. I think that, oh, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Sorry, yeah. Julia. I was going back to what Monica said a little bit and it, it struck me as like the intent piece. Like obviously that person had the right intent where they wanted to, like I often see in org build outs where somebody's getting you know, 20, 30, 40 head count at a clip and they see like, wow, I have the opportunity to really change the the fabric of my team and bring in, you know, diverse experience, diverse perspective, diverse people. But then I've seen it in, they don't know how to turn intent into practice where like this one leader that I had, we were doing an org build out. There were about 30, 40 positions open, and they started doing some of their own sourcing, but then they started making, like it would, it literally said like, okay, David, white male, but we think he's gay. And she has it like on an Excel file, like line by line by line. And I was like, please stop sharing your screen. And let's, I'm like, I'm I'm really going to pretend that I didn't see it. Like, don't, please don't. Mm -hmm. I had like a panic. I said, I know you mean well, but you can't, you know, look at Susie Q and say, okay, <laughs> Susie Q's Asian. And I, yeah, it was, 
Yeah. It's it's it, right. Good intent, bad practice. Yep. And I think that goes to your point, Rodney, where it's like you need to have the the process in place to hire the the best talent, the right talent, and that matches the intent and not get mixed up in the things that make people have the visceral reactions. 100%. And I think that's how you make it kind of, um, you know, you, you don't get caught up in a lot of the politics of this if you do that. Um, and I, I, we probably have hiring managers that are listening to this, I hope. Right. If, if we're, if we're doing things right. Right. Um, yes. And, and I think, you know, a lot of that comes down to collaboration and, and even though you may have the right intent and even if you're an executive, you're a CEO handing down the mandates is great intent, but is that the spirit of what you want? Don't you want an right. organic sense of diversity in your organization? Yeah. Like, so what I find interesting is so to the intent piece and then our best efforts. So Julia and I, she was my manager. And so we, you know, there was this intent on our team was like, let's make sure that recruiters uh, um, attend certain conferences this year. Right. Mm -hmm. So I, I believe Grace Hopper was one that Juliet went to. There was yep. um, women in so or sorry, software engineering. Sweet. Uh, Society of Women Engineers. And then AfroTech. And so um, kind of from the top, it was sort of like, hey, let's make sure recruiters are attending these. They're very important. Great representation for Amazon and um, diversity effort, right? Um, I think we're, and I wouldn't necessarily put a blame on anyone. The structure was lacking a bit, right? And so Juliet and I, with our best you know, efforts where it's not just send these people here because, yeah, that's the, the first half. Like, great, mm -hmm. we have representation there. We're meeting wonderful candidates. We, I remember Juliet kind of, and I looked at each other like, so then what? Like, how are we getting then candidates in the funnel afterward? Like, there was no mechanism by which we were following up with them appropriately. So we were like, okay, let's create like a LinkedIn, you know, project so that when you do meet people at this conference, we actually have, you know, their resumes, their names, so we can actually talk to them afterward. Like, it's not just let's represent ourselves. It's how mm -hmm. are we actually doing something with, you know, this effort and then also, I think what was helpful and really important to us was allowing the space for the folks that came back from the conference to get a chance to tell everyone about it. Mm -hmm. I feel like we hear about there's people attending these conferences every year. Certainly, I don't hear very much about it after. It was just like, oh, yeah, we went to this conference. We have this resume book. And so me and Juliet, and not to like toot our horn, but not saying this was so, you know, but it was something I, w I wasn't seeing as much. I felt like Julia and I both, you know, we talked to the recruiters and we had them present it in front of our whole team. What was the importance of this conference? What did you gain from it? The connections that you made, you know, mm -hmm. I, I just felt like just letting them talk about it. And it's just like a reminder, like, it's not just a numbers game. It's how do we actually get involved in these types of conferences, why they're important and the true impact it made on the people yeah. that were involved. Yep. And so I, I thought that was a good practice that hopefully continues at our previous company. Yeah. That I well, you, you bring up an example, like the example that comes to mind with those is it's a, so AfroTech. Um, I asked a teammate who identifies as a black male, would you like to go? Yes, absolutely. Super excited. Thank you so much. Love the nod. We had our prep meetings leading into it for two, three months. Fantastic. 
I had my recruiter going and I also wanted a business leader to go. So I go to HR and I say, hey, could you recommend a few people that I could reach out to to go to Afrotech? And they said, well, um, what do you mean? And I said, well, I need a, a, a few attendees. And it would be great if I, I'm sure that if there's employees that identify as black, it'll be, you know, an opportunity for them to go to the conference development, everything like that. And I got a hard no from HR. Oh, wow. And I said, but I'm sure there's people who would love to go and be involved. And they said, well, we're not going to make a recommendation. Like, this is the intent piece. Mm-hmm. They said, we're not going to make a recommendation for a conference based on somebody's race. And I'm like, but it's, but it's Africa. I don't know. <laughs> right. I, I, right. If somebody told me if I was going to, like, I went to Grace Hopper, female women technology conference. Yes, I very much fit that criteria. I'd love to represent us. I'm not offended in any way to do that. Mm-hmm. But it kind of brought me to, you guys shared a story before we were recording about how you wanted to ask Monica about mm-hmm. her yeah. To share yeah. that story because so, that's a great one. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and so I think it's just kind of the uh, – to set the stage, I think it's kind of a, a tale of the modern corporate environment, right? So Monica and I – gosh, I started in March. I don't know if we probably met sometime in the spring. And mm-hmm. and I immediately recognized her last name as being Asian. I'm I'm half Asian. I'm half Filipino. I grew up with Asians. Like I can, I can hear an accent and I know, right. And, you know, I, I always wanted to ask her if she was part Vietnamese or Vietnamese, but I never did. And it wasn't until today when we're no longer, you know, working together that I actually had the courage to do it. And, you know, I, I don't think it's that I thought Monica was going to be, you know, upset with me or anything like that. It was just like, I think that was kind of me kind of saying I don't want to offend anyone you know what I mean right. like I don't want to I don't want to be in a meeting and then all of a sudden everybody's like why are you talking about her ethnicity yeah and so so to that point what's funny and what I was saying was it, it would not be offensive I totally understand why you do that especially in a work setting right mm-hmm. like you don't want to say the wrong thing assume this or that but for me you know I grew up in sort of a more suburban more predominantly white neighborhood school I didn't really have a lot of Asian friends um Mm -hmm. and so getting to like in my adulthood even in college like I went to UW which it's a large percentage of Asian um students I got to experience like a whole different world I didn't really experience growing up and so I love talking about that stuff I love to talk about the proudness that I have about being half Vietnamese I like to talk about my dad it's my favorite kind of food. And so like, there would have been that, you know, that immediate connection, Mm -hmm. not that we didn't have it without, but like of, you know, that kind of culture, Asian culture in general, Yeah. if we had gotten to have that conversation. And, and so that's to your point, what's interesting is I tend to, I can tell pretty much right away, like when I'm just in the world, like when someone's Vietnamese, just because of like my, my dad and and language and I recognize Mm -hmm. it. And so I often will just ask, I'll be like, are you Vietnamese? And yeah. like, they get really excited too, but there is sometimes an aftermath. I'm like, should I have asked that? Like, are they going to like, if they're yeah. not Vietnamese, yeah. are they going to feel weird about that? But it's like, you know, it's just a question. I mean, for me, it's coming from a proud place that I hope to connect with you. Not so much that I'm making any sort of accusation, but yeah, I guess depends on what lens you're looking at it through. For well, sure. I feel 
Monica cracks me up. So for for everybody to know, Monica is like the queen of eating breakfast that's not actually <laughs> breakfast. So like we were it's usually true. like the first phone call. And, you know, the, the one time it's like probably 745 your time. And I'm looking at you and I've got, you know, we've I've talked about it. I've got four kids and I'm sitting there and I'm like, are you eating a Lunchable at 745 in the morning? And she's like, yeah, why? And I'm like, okay, that's fine. But then so, and then another time, again, it's like 745 in the morning. I'm like, are you eating a bon me? And you're like, yeah. And like, I think someone might be like, why are you asking her that? And it's like, well, because Monica eats weird breakfast. It's not, right. it's not like, I'm not saying like you shouldn't eat bon me and I'm being weird no. about your food and your ethnicity. Yeah. Like you just eat funny Arguably breakfast. eating a bon that really is odd. And so I don't that's a weird question. But... To that point, what's interesting is, you know, even though, so I, my dad's Vietnamese, but, um, basically like, I think there was a, a little bit of him that he moved us to the United States. He kind of wanted to assimilate to, you know, American culture, but we rarely ate breakfast. Not really mm. a thing. Like I do not remember eating like pancakes, eggs. It was like package of top ramen, 9am. Let's go. And that's what we would eat. And it was like, so I'm so used to eating like kind of strange soup or like pho. I love pho. It's my favorite food. And so it's just funny. Cause it's like, to me, I have no problem being like, yeah, this is what yeah. I eat in the morning. It's... But like, other people would be like, that's weird. Yeah. I think in, if you grow like, so I, my dad was in the air force for 26 years. Mm. And so a lot of, you know, it was, a lot of his friends had Asian wives. We were, they were all, you know, in Vietnam together. They were all in the Philippines together. And so they just kind of stuck around. So like I was surrounded by a lot of Korean, Filipino, um, Japanese. So I got, I got, got used to it. And a lot of my friends were half. And one thing that I found funny is like the food combinations, kind of what you're mm. saying, Monica, like my dad is, was from Kentucky. And so, you know, one of my favorite things growing up is my mom would make fried rice and lumpia. And so lumpia is kind of like a Filipino egg roll. And then it yeah. would get paired with my dad's barbecue ribs, cornbread that and chicken. That sounds delicious. Oh, that sounds amazing. Yeah. just like parents' house for dinner? Yeah. It was just like one of the most amazing, you know, food combinations. Um, but I think that's... a you know, some of the things you get growing up in a mixed household. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. What yeah. I, to bring it back, like, I love this conversation, by the way, I'm sure we could go on about it, but what I find that to kind of bring back to the point of what's important is, you know, we, we care obviously about representation, creating opportunities that aren't there or that are harder. But I think some of the, what could experience sharing right and i think mm -hmm. it all relates right like i think that some of the like for example they started implementing like when you're applying to roles um it's like a little video um where a person that works on that team and often a diverse person or someone who identifies as such will explain their experience on their team mm, um, yeah. and so i do find that maybe like it's getting a little convoluted and like you said there's this distaste and it's like the whole point is bringing 
diverse experiences, backgrounds, cultures, mindsets, like all into the same place. And so even just sharing these conversations to me are so rich and brings us one closer mm-hmm. and two makes it, you know, even just, I think it goes mild acknowledging maybe even an example, I have not had kids. I mean, Julia can maybe speak to this, but acknowledging um, someone who's a new parent and being mm-hmm. like, do you need some extra time off? And so that's the retention piece. It's not just how do we get these people in the door? It's yeah. how do we support them being aware of their background differences, experience, and what is going on in their life, maybe even related to gender or being a parent or however they identify and pausing and listening to them speak and say what they need and how we can support that. And so I think it's just, yeah, experience sharing is and making that space can be and not saying we don't do that, but I don't know if I see it quite enough in a corporate space. Like yeah. I don't, see a highlight of that very often. I think that's equally or more important because now you're talking about employee experience Mm -hmm. and, you know, I'm trying to be careful with my words because it's so important because now you've got an employee and if, if you're not a diverse organization and you are going to treat that person as an other and give them that experience as an employee, you've kind of shown your ass in some respects, right? Because in yeah. the, in the age of, of reviews and feedback, that stuff travels like lightning and it accumulates and it's forever. So as soon as that glass door review goes up, that indeed review goes up, it's there and you're not getting rid of it. But, you know, I think on the other side of that, if I own a company I want to reflect my market. I, I want the ideas of the people that I'm trying to serve. And I want them, you know, I want people to feel like they can be themselves. Authenticity is huge for me. And That's exactly what I was going to say, Rodney. I think mm-hmm. it's bringing, being able to bring your authentic self to work as your whole self. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There, yeah. You know, the idea of corporate code switching is like scary. And, and I, I see it all the time. Like you go into a meeting, it's like, uh, I better code switch on this one. You know what I mean? Like I, if I'm, I can't be real here. I need to, to yeah. kind of wrap this in language that is that sterile corporate language, because, you know, if you're a good leader, you know, your audience. And, you know, if, again, I think we've all worked with the type that you just can't be real. You got to kind of deliver it in that corporate speak if you're going to be safe. And, mm-hmm. You know, that's that's a telltale sign of like, oh, you know, and it's stress inducing. If you've got to do that all day, if you're a minority and you walk in the door, you got to code switch for eight hours and not be yourself. You're going to hate it after a certain amount of time. Yeah, it's like talking all day in your customer service phone voice. (laughs) 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 What's interesting to that point, I remember my first job out of college, I was always very concerned to act or seem too emotional. Like as Mm. a, as a woman, you know, it's like, if I was going through something, shut it off. That was my mindset. It was like, don't bring it to work, leave it at home. Now, do I think there's an element of that for anyone that might be a little true, right? Like maybe breaking down into tears in the middle of a client meeting is probably not going to go well, maybe Mm -hmm. just, (laughs) (laughs) but I think it wasn't until 
um, my later role that I, I remember I was going through, through some mental health stuff at the time. And just, it was, it was just becoming really hard during the day. Um, and for the first time I spoke to my manager about it. Right. And I was like, Hey, and I was very vulnerable position because this was a male manager. I was very afraid to be looking like, Oh no, I can't handle my emotions. I'm a woman at work. Like if I share this, what is he going to think? Am I going to lose some responsibility, opportunity, and so on? Um, and I am thankful and grateful I was met with nothing but understanding and complete understanding of, like, you are human. Like, what right. you know? And so it allowed me to feel comfortable not worrying so much about, like, that gender assignment of, like, oh, I'm going to be emotional and so this or that. It's like we're human and being able to come to the table authentically and saying, I'm having a bad day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> This is what's going on. I'm still going to be professional in my client meetings, but if I'm a little off, this is why. Um, And allowing that, you know, really understanding, again, if you're a parent, if you're this or that, if you are celebrating a certain holiday, being like, yeah, take the time off. Like everyone's different, trying to understand their backgrounds and allow them to just come to the table as such. I I think you've, you've kind of touched on leadership in the sense that being a leader isn't part of being a leader, you know, making sure your team can do their best work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, you have leaders who really recognize that and are flexible enough to to kind of put their their teams in a position to do their best work. But then you have leaders who kind of, you know, here's here's what the best work box looks like. And if you're not in that best work box, I may have a problem with you over time. I'll let it slide this time. But, you know, you come back again and it becomes... Ugh. You know what I mean? And, and we've probably all worked for people like that or we've seen them. Um, but that's, you know, I think that's a diverse mentality, right? Like I knew walking into a meeting with either one of you, I, I could just let it fly. I didn't have to worry about anything. Um, and you guys know me well enough that I can talk about some pretty kind of obtuse stuff and and get pretty it's obtuse. It's one of our favorite things about you, Rodney. <laughs> like, it can be like, I can go, okay, I, I've gone way down this rabbit hole. But I can do that with you. But I know, you know, if if I did that with some other people, it was going to be like, this, this, if this is what this guy's thinking all day, is he doing his work? You know what I mean? It's just kind of like, mm-hmm. I didn't feel like I could authentically do that. Like, I could, I'm pretty good at diagnosing things. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, being a consultant for four years, you learn to diagnose things really quick in an organization. And, you know, as soon as you get shut down once or twice and you just kind of like, forget it. And that, that's a leadership problem. Yeah. I don't know if we solved anything. I think we just proved our opening (laughs) that it is a complicated, complex, thorny, um, topic that we could probably do. I mean, three or four of them, uh, just on this, but 100%. um, Yeah. But I think I had fun doing it and, and And we didn't, we still like each other. (laughs) Yeah. Right. I know you can talk about it with, with people. And I don't know, I don't know if we're even necessarily like-minded in, in every way. No. Um, I mean, there's, there's certain things you can, you can really dig into, but Um, I think it does go to show when you realize that people are not trying to wrong you, 
-hmm. like one of the best corporate one of the best corporate trainings I did, it was like one of those culture boot camps. And usually it's like, oh my God, like, do we really have to do this? But this mm -hmm. one was, it was really great. And a vendor came in and um, the just the main topic was assume positive intent. And especially right. when you're in a fortune 50, 100, 500, you know, any large organization, it's competitive and you're trying to climb the ladder and you're trying to figure out your employees. And when you when you assume positive intent, everything changes. Yeah, 100%. It really does. And so hopefully, Monica, you sense our positive intent, you know, and you're going to come back to us again. Oh, of course. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, if we wanted to round out the conversation, this is kind of a, a cute little story that relates to Juliet and diversity and everything. So I, I was thinking maybe I'd share it really quick. So I had um, primarily male managers, as I was mentioning, and fantastic, fantastic leaders. Some, one of them, my best friend to this day. But Juliet became my manager, I want to say, five months ago. And yeah. no matter how like wonderful that male manager was, I had forgotten a little bit what it was like to be managed by like a woman and be able to be like, oh, she's navigated these spaces mm -hmm. probably with a similar mindset I have, or she's had to maybe again, interview in a room of just men and be like, what did I do? And how did I, act and what did I think? And, and, um, to me, Julia is the perfect example of someone that does it all and is my inspiration. And so just a little story of getting to see, you know, representation and, and how it might change the way you think of a company, mm -hmm. your leaders. And so I just think, you know, at the end of the day, it is very important <laughs> to wrap it all up. We do love Juliet, life. don't we? So you we got us as references, right? Yeah. You just haven't listened to this. Through, I'm blushing through my mic. I love you guys. <laughs> I do. We love I, you. And so, yeah, it's just so important to see someone else that you can relate to, maybe navigating yeah, a hard space. It's and it doesn't really have cool to be, to watch. yeah, it doesn't have to be hard, right? I think positive intent and, and yeah. being able to, to be your authentic self is kind of the crux of it all. So I think that's, yes. a, that's a great place to end it. Yeah. And what thank you guys, you guys so much for having me. No, thank I you for it. being here. I, I, I told Julia, I love Monica. So anytime <laughs> I'm, I, I think you have such great insight and I, I love just kind of watching you think. <laughs> oh thank yeah. you yeah i mean i do love i do love to gap and chat so i'm ready to go anyway. and, and i think the best that we didn't have to see this here is, is and you've probably seen this julia is is to watch monica she's fierce in meetings oh <laughs> yes i love, I love that you no she that. but be but little she is fierce I, oh, yeah. I love seeing that so i hopefully one day we'll get to see it again and and, and i cannot wait until the next time you're on the show Oh, thank you so much. And I really appreciate both of your insight as well. It was awesome talking about this. Awesome. And thanks to everybody for listening. I know this was probably longer than our other episodes, but appreciate you guys. And um, thanks so much for listening. That's it Bye. for That Recruiter Show.